I'm going to read uh, question and answer 20 and 21 uh, and 22. And I ask you to respond on question 23 together. Lord's Day 7. Are all people then saved through Christ just as they were lost through Adam? No. Only those are saved who through true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all his benefits. What is true faith? True faith is not only a sure knowledge by which I hold as true all that God has revealed to us in his word, it is also a wholehearted trust which the Holy Spirit works in me by the gospel that God has freely granted not only to others but, also, but to me also forgiveness of sins eternal righteousness and salvation. These gifts are purely of grace only because of Christ's merit. What then must a Christian believe? All that is promised us in the gospel, a summary of which is taught us in the articles of our Catholic and undoubted Christian faith. What are these articles? I believe Amen. Let's open our Bibles now, please, to the book of Matthew. Luke 7 is noted there as well. Maybe you can take time at, uh, at lunchtime or so to read Luke 7. We're going to read Matthew 8. Verses 1 to 13. When he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. Behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you tell no one, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Here begins our text at verse 5. Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I am also a man under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, 
and he goes, and to another come, and he comes, and to my servant do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abram, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus said to the centurion, go your way, and as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. So far the reading of God's holy word. Capernaum, situated on the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee. For a good part of his public ministry, Jesus used it as his headquarters. In chapter 9, verse 1, it's even called his own city. Some of his disciples were from Capernaum. Matthew himself, the writer of this gospel, had his tax office there from which Jesus called him. Jesus performed many miracles there. Demon-possessed people were healed. A paralytic who was lowered through the roof was healed. Peter's mother-in-law was healed. And also this paralyzed servant of the centurion was healed in Capernaum, not to mention many others. The importance and privileged position of Capernaum is reflected in Jesus' pronouncement of judgment upon it. Listen to what he said in Matthew 11, verse 23. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Amazing. Amazing. Jesus said that wicked Sodom, which was filled with numerous perversions, where God's law was repudiated, would be better off than Capernaum. Why? Because Jesus had preached the gospel and demonstrated his authority there by healing many of their sick. The light shone brightly. But despite all of his works of mercy, love, and power, the people of Capernaum, for the most part, remained unrepentant. Therefore, Jesus pronounced a curse upon them. But congregation, as we see in our text, not everyone rejected the authority of Jesus. There were some who were convicted by his words and works and received not the curse, but the blessing of the Lord. They received the word because God gave them the gift of true saving faith. From Matthew 8, verses 5 to 13, in connection with Lord's Day 7, we want to consider the interaction between Jesus and a Roman centurion reflecting upon the question, what is true faith? Notice three things. First, a serious problem. Second, a sincere profession, and third, a singular privilege. A serious problem. 
The man who approached Jesus in verse 5 was a military officer under Herod Antipas. He was a man of some rank and power. A centurion commanded a fighting unit of the Roman army. Only the best, the most skilled soldiers became centurions. Matthew says in verse 5 that he came to Jesus pleading with him. The account in Luke 7 shed some additional light on the story. That's why I recommend you read it sometime today. The centurion himself did not come to Jesus, but sent some of the elders of the Jews, pleading earnestly with him to come and heal his servants. He did not feel worthy to approach Jesus personally. After all, he was what? A Gentile. Not only was he a Gentile, but he was also among the troops who served under the wicked Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was the one who had arrested and beheaded John the Baptist. A Roman centurion would have ordinarily been despised by the Jews, much like a Nazi captain in occupied territory during the Second World War. So instead of going to Jesus himself, he sent some of the elders of the Jews. Luke provides some insight into the character of this man. When the elders came to Jesus, they said, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Remarkably, the centurion was highly esteemed by the Jews of Capernaum. He was evidently a God-fearing Gentile. He must have been rather well off to be able to finance the building of a synagogue, but he was also generous and kind. He must have discarded pagan polytheism and embraced Jewish monotheism. And by the grace of God, as we will see, he had also advanced beyond Judaism to faith in Jesus, the Son of God. Now, what exactly was this man's problem? Go to verse 6. Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. The account in Luke tells us that the servant was sick and at the point of death. This was no minor affliction. He was suffering from paralysis which left him bedridden and now he was hovering at the brink of death. The word servant there in verse 6 of Matthew 8 literally means a young child. Luke uses the actual word servant or slave. The fact that, that this was a young child may indicate that he was born into the servant household of the centurion. As this boy was growing up, the centurion had become particularly fond of him. Luke tells us that he was dear to the centurion. But now this dear boy was at the threshold of eternity. Just like the leper in verses 1 through 4, who seemed to have no hope, this boy was in a seemingly hopeless situation. And yet, just as the leper expressed confidence in Jesus Christ, verse 2b, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean, so also this centurion expressed confidence in Jesus. He did not come right out and ask for healing. He only stated the boy's dreadful condition. 
But like the leper, so also here the request for healing is certainly implied. Now the fact that this centurion cared so much for this servant says something about his character. Soldiers of that day could be brutal. Brutal. They often treated their slaves no different than they treated an animal. According to one ancient Roman writer, the only difference between a slave, a beast, and a cart was that the slave talked. This centurion was different. Even though he would have been an experienced fighter, nevertheless, his heart ached with compassion for his suffering slave boy. In Luke 7, verse 3, we read that he had heard what Jesus had done for others, and he desired that same mercy for his own slave. So how did Jesus respond? Did he say, you're a Gentile? I'll have nothing to do with you. You're scum employed by the enemy of Israel. Go to verse 7. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. These words were not spoken directly to the centurion, but to the elders of the Jews who represented him. I will come and heal him. There are no conditions, no questions, no hesitancy. I will come and heal him. Jesus began to make his way to the centurion's home. The centurion heard of his coming and quickly sent out some friends to him with a message. What was the message? Well, we come to point number two, a sincere profession. A sincere profession. Keep reading at verse 8. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof. Luke's account says, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. The centurion felt genuinely unworthy. His message to Jesus is striking in light of what the Jewish elders had said about him. In Luke 7 verse 4, the elders had come to Jesus and begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was what? Worthy. He is worthy to have you do this for him. The elder said, he is worthy. The centurion said, I am not worthy. Congregation, think about it. Who is worthy to have the Son of God come under his roof? To have God incarnate step on the floor of his house? Who is worthy to interrupt his day that he might come and heal this young, seemingly insignificant slave boy? Besides, if Jesus entered the house of this centurion, he would be breaking the custom which forbade a Jew to enter the house of a Gentile lest he become ceremonially defiled. This centurion knew the customs of the Jews. For Jesus to enter his home would be regarded as ceremonial defilement. However, I don't believe this was the main thing on his mind. What really overwhelmed him was his personal sense of unworthiness. You see, this Gentile centurion recognized in Jesus an authority far greater than his own. 
Notice that twice he addressed Jesus as Lord. Lord, my servant lies at home paralyzed. Lord, I am not worthy. His use of the word Lord is surely more than a mere expression of respect and courtesy. Just as the leper in verse 2 addressed Jesus as Lord, thereby acknowledging that he was in the presence of God himself, so also I believe this centurion acknowledged the deity of Jesus. In verse 2, the leper knelt in humility, reverence, and awe. In a similar manner, the centurion became overwhelmed with a sense of his own inadequacy. He knew that Jesus owed him nothing. Congregation, in the Old Testament, there are various passages showing us that when people came in contact with the divine, they were struck with a profound awareness of their own unworthiness. When Isaiah received that glorious vision in which he saw the Lord, he said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. When Ezekiel saw an appearance of the glory of the Lord, he fell on his face in humility. When Abraham was in the presence of the Lord, he said, I am but dust and ashes. When Manoah and his wife found themselves in the presence of God, they fell on their faces to the ground. Direct contact with the divine produces a very keen awareness of man's unworthiness. This centurion, although a man of influence and authority, nevertheless felt unworthy to have Jesus in his, in his home. When you read the entire passage, it seems to me that he recognized that being in the presence of Jesus was being in the presence of God himself. Brothers and sisters, when you contemplate the character of your Savior, when you consider His mighty works and words, when you consider His perfect life, and then when you ponder your own defiled heart and life, does it not create in you a deep feeling of unworthiness? Would you bow before Him in prayer? Are you ever overwhelmed by your own inadequacy? Are you ever humbled by the massive contrast between the perfect character of your Lord and your own rottenness? Some people seem to think that they're doing God a favor when they come to church on Sunday morning. That God is quite privileged to have them come. Do any of you have that mentality? God is privileged to have you come. It is when a person really comes to understand the character of his God and the condition of his own heart that he also comes to see just how unworthy he is to stand in his presence. Lord, I am not worthy. I am not worthy. And then notice the next thing that this centurion said through his messengers in verse 8b. But only speak a word and my servant will be healed. 
Since the servant was too sick to be carried out to Jesus, and since the centurion felt unworthy to have Jesus at his house, he sent a message for Jesus to merely speak a word. The centurion believed that distance was not a problem for Jesus. His actual physical presence was not required. All that was needed was his consenting word. Brothers and sisters, this centurion understood more than some of Jesus' closest friends. In John 11, after Lazarus had died, Jesus went to visit Mary and Martha. When he arrived, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She seemed to think that his physical presence was required. This centurion saw beyond that, just say the word and my servant will be healed. His faith was consistent with what the Old Testament taught about the powerful word of the Lord. Psalm 33, 6, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. The word out of the mouth of the Lord has power. Genesis 1 says God spoke, and there was light. God spoke, and there was a firmament. God spoke, and there was grass, herbs, and trees. God spoke, and there were lights in the firmament. God spoke, and living creatures appeared. All of creation came through what, children? The Word of the Lord. In John 1, we read that it was through Jesus Christ that all of creation came into being. If all of creation came into being through the word, then surely it is but a small thing for Jesus to speak the word and heal this dreadfully tormented servant. The centurion professed the power of the word. And then in verse 9, he used an illustration from his own daily experience to support his statement of verse 8. He said, for I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me, and I'd say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. As a military officer, the centurion knew something about authority. When he issued a command, he would see prompt results. It's extremely important in the military that when the commander issues an order, it's quickly obeyed. The centurion understood that if he, with his limited authority, issued an order and it was immediate, immediately obeyed by both soldiers and slaves, if that was so with him, then surely Jesus, the great commander, is able to say the word, simply the word, and it will be done. If Jesus says go, the disease will go. If he says, come, health will come. Jesus has authority. He commands, and creation obeys. Congregation, do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you believe that he's the great commander? Now, brothers and sisters, what was the response of Jesus to the words of this Gentile centurion? Follow along at verse 10. 
When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. Jesus was astonished by the centurion's profession. He saw stronger and more genuine faith in this Gentile soldier than he had seen in Israel. In this very chapter, verse 26, Jesus even said to his own disciples, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Little faith. To be sure, Jesus found those of faith within Israel. There were some who believed in him, but there was not one who matched the devotion, humility, love, and sincerity of this Gentile. In fact, in Mark 6, Jesus went to his hometown of Nazareth where he spoke with great power in the synagogue. He also performed mighty works. And yet, when he departed from there, it says Jesus, what? Marveled. He was amazed. Why? Because of their faith? No. He marveled because of their unbelief. Those who were the closest to Jesus, who grew up in the same town, who were able to witness his blameless life, they were offended at him, and Jesus marveled at their unbelief. This Gentile, who was not part of the people of God, who was a stranger to the covenant of promise, who would have been ordinarily looked down upon by the Jews as a Gentile dog, this man had greater faith than any in Israel. What a remarkable evaluation from the lips of the Savior. And congregation, what a remarkable assessment of the covenant people of God. Jesus' words are a testimony to this man's faith but they are also a rebuke to those who should have known much better than this Gentile. The Jews were raised with the Scriptures. They had the Word driven into them from infancy. They knew the promises and prophecies, yet many of them were offended at Jesus, and he marveled at their unbelief. Congregation, can this also happen today? It certainly can. You could be born into the church, catechized and instructed in the most orthodox doctrines, yet the Lord may raise up an outsider who has never set foot in the church, who has not been baptized, who's not been instructed in the doctrines of Christianity. The Lord may work in his heart to such an extent that his faith surpasses the faith of the one who was raised in the midst of the covenant community. The Jews should have rejoiced in their Messiah. They should have embraced, worshipped, and trusted him with their whole heart. But instead, this soldier, in the service of the wicked Herod Antipas, this Gentile centurion, understood who Jesus really was. He possessed true faith. Congregation, what is true faith? Faith is essential to salvation. 
Our catechism rightly points out in Lord's Day 7 that not all will be saved. Only those are saved who through true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all His benefits. So what is faith? It is the channel through which salvation from God comes from God to us. Faith is a gift of God and it's created by the Holy Spirit through the gospel. While true faith includes knowledge, it is not merely an intellectual assent to certain doctrines. It is more than that. Yes, it includes knowledge, but also conviction. It includes both the head and the heart. It is also deep-rooted assurance. Faith is a personal assurance that God sent His Son not merely for others, but He sent His Son to live and die in my place for me. I am forgiven. I am right with God. I am loved. Faith hears the truth of the gospel, believes it, and acts upon it. Saving faith moves from an intellectual acceptance of certain facts to a wholehearted trust in Christ. It is a trusting response of the mind and heart to the Savior. The Roman centurion knew about Christ, was convicted of his need for him, and was willing to take him at his word. Saving faith is composed of information, intellectual assent, and personal trust. Saving faith is composed of information, intellectual assent, and personal trust. Our Heidelberg Catechism says it this way, true faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed to us in His Word. At the same time, it is a firm confidence, wholehearted trust that not only to others, but also to me, God has granted forgiveness of sins, eternal righteousness and salvation purely of grace. Only because of Christ's merit, this faith, the Holy Spirit, works in me by the gospel. The simple acrostic expresses it rather well. F. A-I-T-H, forsaking all, I take him. Is that your confession? Have you done that, children? Forsaking all, I take him. We come then to point number three. We've seen a serious problem at a sincere profession, we conclude with a singular privilege, a remarkable, extraordinary, singular privilege. Congregation, as Jesus marveled at the faith of this Gentile, he anticipated something wonderful. He saw the covenant broadening, as it were. The healing of this Gentile servant became prophetic of the salvation of the Gentiles. The faith of this soldier was also prophetic of the many Gentiles who would receive the gift of true faith and believe in Christ. 
Look what Jesus says in verse 11. Please follow along at verse 11. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. As Jesus observed the genuine faith of this man, he was able to foresee events that would come to pass among the Gentiles. Many of them would come from east and west, that is, people from all over the world, would bow before Jesus Christ and share the salvation of the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In this centurion, Jesus could see the church enlarged and covenant membership broadened. Those who were once not a people are made the people of God. And congregation, isn't this precisely what the prophets had predicted? Malachi 1 says, From the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. The Old Testament has numerous references to Gentiles coming to worship the Lord. And then notice how Jesus pictures the blessings of salvation for those who come. He says that all the Gentiles who come to him in faith will take their places or sit down or recline with the patriarchs. The custom in Jesus' day was to recline on couches around a table at mealtimes. Verse 11 is describing the blessings of the kingdom. Those who believe in the God and Savior of the patriarchs will be seated at the banquet feast in the presence of the patriarchs together, enjoying eternal fellowship with God. They will enjoy that heavenly feast, the messianic banquet. Brothers and sisters, these words must have been shocking to the Jews at Capernaum. Shocking. At that time, for a Jew to sit at the table with a Gentile was to, con was to contract ceremonial defilement. The scribes and Pharisees would not hear of it. But Jesus says that even the patriarchs themselves, the revered fathers, would sit at the table with Gentiles as fellow guests at the kingdom banquet. And that's not all. Look at verse 12. More shocking words. The Gentiles will be at the banquet table with the patriarchs, but, verse 12, the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Wow. That would have got their attention. Subjects of the kingdom Children of the covenant, descendants of Abraham, those bearing the mark of circumcision, they will be cast into outer darkness. The Jews are not assured a place at the Messianic banquet. Entrance into the kingdom of heaven is not by means of genealogical descent. It is by what? By faith in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. The Jews had received astounding privileges. Romans 3 asked the question, what advantage has the Jew? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. 
Romans 9, to them pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. You see, the Lord had given them so much. Yet by rejecting the Savior, they cast away all the promises and blessings. And even though they assumed a place of honor in the presence of their father Abraham, Jesus says that their ultimate destiny is a place of darkness, weeping, and gnashing of teeth, utterly horrifying. They anticipated a glorious future. But by the rejection of Jesus, they will find themselves forever barred from the glory of the kingdom, cast into a place that is far from the banquet hall. The light of the banquet hall will not so much as touch them. They will remain in outer darkness. There in the darkness, in contrast to the joy of the banquet hall, there will be weeping, everlasting despair, and hopelessness. There will be gnashing of teeth as a result of pain, fear, and suffering. With these few words, Jesus completely stripped away all the false confidence of those who did not believe in him. The kingdom belongs not to Jews by descent, but to Jews by faith. The Gentile centurion showed himself to be more of a Jew, a son of Abraham, than the Jewish religious leaders who hated Jesus. To him who possessed great faith is granted the privilege of great feasting. The congregation, as we hear these words of our Lord, on the one hand, we can be very thankful the door to the banquet hall is opened also to us. Through faith in the Savior, you can be part of that great multitude from east and west that may be seated with the patriarchs in the kingdom. The blessings of the Abrahamic covenant are now extended to believers and their seed from every nation of the earth. So there are great privileges, great blessings for you today. But on the other hand, these words should also serve as a solemn warning to us. There is a danger that the church today may display the same attitude as the Jews at the time of Jesus. We're covenant people. We're baptized. We're sons and daughters of the kingdom. We're part of the church. Yes, being part of the church surely offers many blessings, just as Israel of old. However, membership in the church and inclusion in God's covenant does not secure salvation apart from faith in the Christ of the covenant. Children, young people, please remember that. Being included in God's covenant actually adds to your condemnation if you do not believe. Sons of the kingdom, children of the covenant will be cast out. And in the day of judgment, it will be more tolerable for Sodom than for subjects of the kingdom who did not repent and believe. 
It is unbelieving sons of the kingdom who receive the curses of the covenant. And so, congregation, as parents, we baptize our children. We will witness that again this afternoon. To them are granted great and precious promises. However, those promises only become a reality by means of repentance and faith. And therefore, we lay before our children both the promises and the demands of the covenant. Subjects of the kingdom who do not believe will experience eternal misery. These are very sobering words, but words that need to be heard also in the church today. Your place in the covenant cannot be separated from faith in Jesus Christ. Well, then we come down to verse 13. Where Jesus said to the centurion or to those representing him, go your way. And as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. The centurion had said that it was not necessary for Jesus to enter his home. In the manner that he believed, so Jesus healed his servant. The paralyzed servant boy was near death, but from a distance Jesus said the word, and it was so. But congregation, as amazing as this miracle was, there is something far greater here. The faith of the centurion and the healing of this Gentile slave boy were tokens of the great healings that would take place among the nations. As the gospel would go forth to the ends of the earth, men, women, and children from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation would be freely healed by that word. Healing of the body pointed to a far greater healing. The Gentiles were in bondage to sin. Without the word of the Savior, they would most certainly perish eternally. But as the word went forth into Gentile territory, there was a great harvest from east and west. And even today, there is a harvest as the word goes forth. There are those who hear and are brought to saving faith in Jesus. Those who repent and believe will feast in the kingdom. Their joy will not be focused merely on Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but on the God and Savior of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. While the unbelieving subjects of the kingdom spend eternity in the weeping of hell, all those who by true faith believe in Jesus and his substitutionary sacrifice will share the joys of the kingdom. In that kingdom, there will be no weeping. In that kingdom, there will be no weeping. What do we read in Revelation 21, 4? God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Revelation 7, 17, the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
Congregation, what a wonderful future awaits those who respond in true faith to the sound of the gospel. Jesus Christ, by his suffering, death, and resurrection, has secured an open door to that joy-filled banquet hall. He has secured a seat at the table in the presence of the patriarchs. There, at that banquet, the redeemed from all ages will celebrate together the wonderful redemption of their Savior and Lord. Dear friends, will you be seated at the table? Will you be seated at that table? Will you spend eternity with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the centurion? Christ calls his children from east and west, and he said that many would come. Don't neglect or decline that gracious invitation. But come in faith to the Savior. Entrance to the kingdom is through him alone. Only those are saved who through true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all his benefits. Are you grafted into him? Have you accepted all his benefits? May the Lord graciously grant to each one of you true saving faith. And then may he use you to call others to come to faith in him, to be spiritually enriched by his healing power, and then at death, to inherit the everlasting joys of the kingdom and great feasting through the free grace of Jesus Christ. May the Lord use each and every one of you to lead sinners to that true saving faith. Let us pray. Lord, we praise you for our great and gracious Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for all that he accomplished for us so that we, instead of enduring weeping and gnashing of teeth in hell forever, we may enter the kingdom along with the patriarchs to celebrate eternally our redemption where all tears will be wiped away. Lord, did you grant to each one here that gift of true saving faith Lord, our passage for this morning expresses many wonderful things, but also some very serious warnings. We pray, Lord, that we would not be among those who hear the word, but fail to respond rightly to it. That we would not be as those within covenant in Israel, who had the word, who had the promises, who had the gospel, who had the Christ in their midst, and yet rejected it, and are at this moment suffering, and weeping, and gnashing their teeth 
pray, Lord, that none of us would be so foolish as to resist that great invitation. Lord, you have said that many would come from east and west and sit down with Abram, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. In that we rejoice, but you also said that the sons of the kingdom would be cast into outer darkness. And Lord, we pray that the message of hope and joy would permeate our hearts and that the warning would cause us to flee to Jesus in whom alone there is life. Receive our praises as we conclude here. And Lord, may we be able to discuss these things together. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.